Would you uh, please open your Bible with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, today in our series, we arrive at a point um, in the story of the Bible where we are introduced for the very first time to David. And David would become one of the most popular and one of the most prestigious kings in all of Israel. Uh, We started this series looking to Jesus back in January, and this now is sermon number 16 within our series. And uh, there have been many times along the way, I feel like, where I have begun a message by asking you to open your Bible to a certain place and telling you this is one of the most popular stories in all of the Bible. And it happened the very first week we started this series. We were in Genesis chapter 1, the very first words of the Bible, and uh, where God created the heavens and the earth, one of the most popular passages in all the Bible. The problem was it happened again the very next week. We were in Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and, and it's one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible. And then it happened again the week after that, Genesis 6, where Noah builds the ark in one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible. And then it happened again a couple of weeks later, Genesis 22, and where Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible. And then we finally got out of Genesis and we went to Exodus chapter 3, one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible with Moses and the burning bush. And then we went to Exodus 14, one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible and Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And then Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible. And all of these stories over and over again that we have been taught since we have been so young. And, but today, today, this for sure, I guarantee you, is one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible. This in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 is the story of David and Goliath. And the thing about the story of David and Goliath is that this has come to mean many different things to many different people. In fact, just this week as I was preparing for this message, I read many variations of what some people think is the main point of the story of David and Goliath. For example, some people think the main point of the story of David and Goliath is, and you can probably finish this sentence, the bigger they are, the the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Some people think that the main point of the story of David and Goliath is that there's hope for the underdog. Some people think that the main point of the story of David and Goliath is how to face the giants in your life and defeat them. Some people think that you just have to have faith and fight harder against the things that are holding you back and everything's going to be okay. And, and it was just like all over the map. And, and it's not that this section in the Bible doesn't have anything to say about some of those things. It does, and we're actually going to get to some of those things later. But are any of those things the main point of the story of David and Goliath? And if those things are not the main point of the story of David and Goliath, then what is the main point of the story of David and Goliath? And maybe you're sitting here right now after 15 sermons in this series and you're thinking to yourself, Jesus is the main point of the story of David and Goliath, right? And and if that's what you're thinking right now, then you would be absolutely correct. But then the bigger question than that becomes, how is Jesus the main point of the story of David and Goliath? And so we're coming to 1 Samuel 16 and 17 this morning, and it is about to teach us something great, not just about David and Goliath, but more importantly, this story has something to teach us that is great about Jesus, 
And it has something to teach us about how Jesus helps us fight the battles within our lives. And that's the big idea that we're going to make our way towards this morning. Jesus helps me fight the battles in my life. And here's how I want uh, to help us see this truth this morning. I want to give you three captions as we walk our way through uh, chapter 16 and 17 that will then lead us to two commitments. So three captions that lead us to two commitments. And I want to give you these three captions right up front because I want you to see where we're going to go as we make our way through chapter 16 and 17. So caption number one is the story of David and Goliath. Caption number two is the story of David and Jesus. And then caption number three is the story of Jesus and you. And that then is going to lead us into two commitments. So let's begin here with caption number one, the story of David and Goliath. So we come to 1 Samuel 16, and this here is the rise of David. We're going to get to David and Goliath in chapter 17, but we come to chapter 16, and we are at a point now in the life of Israel where the people have come out of the time of the judges in the Old Testament where everyone was doing their own thing and living their own way. And eventually the people said that they wanted a king like all of the other nations around them. So regrettably, this is more than just a request from the people to have a king. This is the people regretting and saying that they were not happy that God was supposed to be their king. Instead, they wanted a person that they could see and hear who would lead them and protect them and give them some sense of stability within their lives, not only individually, but also as a nation. So eventually, an impressive-looking young man named Saul is anointed to be the king of Israel. And Saul fails them miserably because he refuses God's authority within his life, and he refuses God's authority within the life of the nation of Israel. So at that point, God withdraws his blessing from Saul so that now, by this point, Saul is a king in name only. And the sad reality for Israel is that they got the king they asked for, but they did not get the king that they needed. And so chapter 16 now opens with Samuel, one of the good guys and the last of the prophets of Israel. He's grieving that Saul is king because Saul has essentially been dethroned by God himself, which brings us now to chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So notice the emphasis here in these first few verses of chapter 16. God is telling Samuel to do this because God has chosen a new king. So we look at verse 1. God says, I have rejected him. God says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I, God says, have provided for myself a king among his sons. Verse 3, God says, I will show you what you shall do. God says, anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So notice this right off the bat. God is coming to the people, and in his grace, he is rescuing them from something that they wanted so that he could give them something that they needed. Like, don't miss this. For Israel, a better future awaited them with David than the present experience they were having with Saul. 
So God was willing to come to them and take from them what they wanted in order to give them what they needed. And we need to see that it is an act of God's grace within our lives that he comes to us at times and and he takes away things from us that we want in order to give things to us that we need. And specifically, he comes to us in his grace and he takes things away from us that are taking us farther and farther and farther away from Christ so that he can give us things that bring us closer and closer and closer to Christ. Like to this point, Saul was the people's choice. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was far stronger than any other man in Israel. And based on how he looked physically, based on his outward appearance, it made sense for him to be the next king of Israel. But God sees things differently. And so now, instead of letting the people choose another king, God is coming and he is choosing his own king. Take a look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel here goes to one of the smallest places in all of Judah, this out-of-the-way place called Bethlehem, where he meets a man named Jesse. And Jesse has a house full of sons, one of whom the Lord has already told Samuel should be anointed to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel lines all of them up, and he begins with Eliab. And Eliab is the oldest of the sons, and Eliab is the tallest of the sons, and Eliab has the most experience of the sons, and Eliab is the most kingly looking of the sons, and Samuel is standing there looking at Eliab, thinking to himself, surely this guy has to be the one. At which point, God steps in, and in a very gracious way, he looks to Samuel and says, really Samuel, you want to do this again? Because isn't that the same mistake that was made the last time? Like, don't forget, that's how you ended up with Saul, right? Because Saul was the tallest of the men in Israel, and Saul was the strongest of the men in Israel, and Saul was the most kingly looking of all of the men in Israel. And this was just the beginning of a lesson that God was teaching Samuel that he is now also teaching us. And the lesson is this, the Lord does not look at things the way that we look at things. The Lord doesn't look at things the way that we look at things. You know, God doesn't choose you because of what you have to offer him. God doesn't choose me because of what I have to offer him. God doesn't choose people to serve him based on what those people have to offer him. I mean, what do we have to offer God, right? Do we have anything to offer God? No, we have nothing at all that we have to offer God. He doesn't look at us and think to himself, wow, that woman is brilliant, and wow, that guy's a sharp dresser, and wow, those people over there, they have a lot of money. Just think of what I could do if I could just somehow bring all of those people together and everything that we could accomplish, and God doesn't work like that. He's not working like that here. In fact, right here, he looks at Eliab, who is taller than all of the brothers, and he is stronger than all of the brothers. I mean, Eliab is the brother in Jesse's house who has the royal wave down pat, right? Like, he's rocking the royal wave. He's got it all together. And God looks at him and says, nope, he's not my guy. And by the way, Samuel, that's not how I go about choosing my guy. 
See, while everyone else is busy looking at all of the external things, while everyone else is busy looking at all of the outward appearances, God is looking at the one place that only he can see. He is looking at the heart. Now, can we just all agree that it's a good thing to take care of our outward appearance? Can we all agree on that? It's a good thing, right? Um, I'm not really on Facebook that much anymore, uh, but I was on a couple months ago, and I'm part of a Facebook group with some other senior pastors within our fellowship, and, and one of the senior pastors in that Facebook group, um, whom I know a little bit better than many of the other guys, uh, he posted a serious question on that Facebook group, and he said, how do you talk to a staff member who has excessive body odor? Like, he, he, he's just not taking care of his outward appearance. And it was a serious question that he was asking. And, and I got to tell you, I was, like, super tempted in that moment just to type back and say, oh, man, that stinks. Like, <laughs> like you know, you know, but I didn't. I, like, self-control from the Holy Spirit. I think, I think that's what it was in the moment. But I still might go back and, and do that. It's a good thing to take care of our outward appearance, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But let me ask you this. What priority do you give to what your heart looks like before God? Like, just think about this for a minute. For all of the time and the energy and the money and the resources that we give to things like diets and exercise and workout plans and looking good and impressing other people, for all of the time and effort that we spend on all of those things, how much time and effort are we giving to cultivating the inner virtues of our hearts? Things like humility and wisdom and discernment and purity and compassion. In other words, when God looks at your heart, what does he see? So God sets Samuel in the right direction here, which leads us now to verse 8. Chapter 16, verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So remember here, God does not look at the situation in the same way that we look at the situation. The problem here is that David is so far off everyone's radar that he's not even invited to this sacrifice. Like, he's out in the field somewhere, tending his sheep, and in the meantime, Samuel goes through all of Jesse's sons, and God doesn't give the green light on a single one of them, and Samuel looks at Jesse, and he says, are these all your boys? And Jesse's like, well, now come to think of it, there's still one. He's the youngest, though, and he's just a shepherd, and truth be told, I'm not even sure where he is right now. And, and so Samuel looks back at him and says, listen, this didn't go very well the first time with Saul, so we're not messing this up again. God brought me here specifically to you, so somebody go get the boy, and we are not leaving. In fact, Samuel says, we are not even going to sit down until he comes back and we see if he's the one. Sure enough, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Not exactly the description you would expect of a mighty warrior king to be. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So at this point, Saul is still the king of Israel. But David here is anointed to be the next king. And this sets David and Saul on a collision course for the remainder of Saul's reign as king. And that's just highlighted now as we get to chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. Notice chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokka and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he, had a bronze he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So everything about this situation up to this point is going terribly wrong for Israel. And the most obvious of their problems is this giant who is standing right in front of them named Goliath. Verse 4 says that he is six cubits and a span. So in our terms of measurement, that's about nine feet, nine inches tall. So he's just a few inches shorter than most basketball nets are set at. But it's not just how big he is, it's how he's dressed up for this battle. Verse 5 says that he's wearing a bronze helmet, which, spoiler alert, apparently doesn't cover his forehead. He's about to find that one out the hard way in a few minutes. <laughs> Verse 5, he's wearing a coat of mail. So a coat of mail is like a bunch of small iron pieces that are linked together. Just think of the scales on a snake and how those scales overlap one another and, and they're just covered from top to bottom. And, and that's what Goliath is wearing. He looks like this 10-foot tall, giant, talking and walking snake. Verse 5, this coat that he's wearing weighs about 125 pounds. Like the coat just by itself is 125 pounds. Verse 6, he has bronze armor on his legs and a javelin strapped to his back. Verse 7, he has a huge spear that he's carrying and it was like a weaver's beam. In other words, the spear was made in a way that Goliath could just take it out and sling it at his opponent and instantly kill him. Then verse 7, the head of that spear alone weighed more than 15 pounds. Like the head on the spear just by itself, 15 pounds. And if all that wasn't enough, Goliath had another guy standing in front of him and his only responsibility was to be his shield bearer. So he would carry this shield that was just about as big as Goliath himself and he would stand out and he would go out in front of Goliath. His only job was to hold that shield out in front of Goliath. So there's Goliath, this massive chunk of humanity. And he is ready to engage at this point in what they called representative warfare where instead of sending the entire armies down into the valley and all of these soldiers just fighting each other and killing each other, instead they would send one of their best fighters down into the valley and those two guys would duke it out against each other and it was winner take all. 
And this description of this massive Goliath who has now come down into this valley is then followed by this less than massive description of David. Check out chapter 17 and verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. So remember, these three guys, these are David's three brothers who just a little while before had been passed over to be the next king of Israel in favor of David. Verse 14. David was the youngest, the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So this is happening now for 40 straight days, morning and evening, going back and forth. And so at this point, Jesse, who is David's father, sends David down to the battle with some cheese and crackers for his brothers to make sure that they're okay. Skip down now to verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. And this, we need to see, is where the story begins to take a turn. David sees this situation different from the way that everybody else sees it. Everybody else, including Goliath, sees this as an attack against Israel. But David now is walking down into the valley, and he sees this as an attack against God. Eventually, David ends up standing in front of King Saul himself. Look down at verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. I mean, if the physical prospect of Goliath wasn't enough at this point, Saul looks back at David and says, you can't go down there and fight him because this guy's been fighting people and killing people longer than you've been alive. And look at how David responds now in verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And that is the story of David and Goliath. It is the story of unlikely salvation from an unlikely savior. Now, as it can be with any passage in the Bible, especially with a passage in the Old Testament, it can be really tempting for us at this point to immediately jump into how this passage should apply to us in our lives. And we need to do that. We need to apply God's word to our lives. But, but if we do that instantly, if we do that right away, we run the risk of eliminating Jesus from the process and therefore sacrificing the depth of application to our lives. And so I want us to take these next few minutes and walk through this passage and see how Jesus makes all the difference, which leads us now to the second caption, the story of David and Jesus. So just think about this for a minute. Who in this entire passage do you most identify with? Who in this entire story of David and Goliath do you most identify with? And I wonder, if we were to do a show of hands right now and go around the room, I wonder how many of us would say, oh man, I am David for sure. Like, no doubt about it. I am David standing down in that valley because I have all of these Goliaths within my life that, that I need to fight and I need to take down. And I have the Goliath of my health and I have the Goliath of my finances and my job situation and my singleness and my anxiety and my worry. I have all of these Goliaths and then some. And so we're sitting here right now and we're like, come on, pastor, tell me, how do I overcome all of these Goliaths within my life? And there are certainly some lessons for us to learn about how we overcome these things within our lives. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But the problem is this. We are not meant to identify with David. At least not primarily. All of us sitting here right now with all of the failures of our past and all of the fears of our future. We are meant to identify with Israel. We are the ones 
who are cowering in fear anytime our Goliath comes down into the valley and starts showing us how big and how intimidating he really is. We are the ones who, just like Israel, most often only react to the threats within our lives that the enemy makes, which then makes us realize just how helpless and weak we actually are. We are the ones who, just like Israel, often lack the courage to fight the enemy because in the heat of the moment, our Goliath looks bigger than our God. And like Israel, we are the ones who need to realize that the situation does not turn the corner until God sends his chosen servant to save his people from an enemy that they could never defeat on their own. And so when we come to the story of David and Goliath, one of the main takeaways for us is not just that we can be a David. It's not just that we can be brave and we can be strong and we can be courageous in the middle of our battles. It's not just that we can be a David. The main point of this story is that we need a David. We need a David to defeat the enemy that we are so afraid of and we cannot defeat on our own. We need someone who is going to come into the heat of our battle and be our representative. See, you need to see this. When, when David fought this battle, it wasn't just David's battle to fight. I mean, it was Israel's battle. It was everyone's battle. And the outcome of this battle, of course, would not only impact David, it would impact all of Israel. And not only that, we need someone who will come into the heat of our battle and be our imputation. Let me translate that to English for you. In other words, when David fought this battle and when David won this battle, it was not just David's victory, it was everyone's victory. And everyone then got to enjoy the benefits of that victory because David won. And many years later, there would be another boy who would be born in Bethlehem, one of the least towns in Judah. And he had no outward ornaments of success or prosperity. Nobody would look at him and think that he would one day be a king because he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and he had no beauty that we should desire him. But that did not matter because he was God's chosen servant who would come and be our representative. He fought the battle against our greatest Goliath. Jesus came as God's anointed one. He came as our Messiah. And check this, after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, listening to the taunts of the enemy, Jesus emerges victorious. And because the power of the Lord was upon him, never once did Jesus walk away from this battle. Instead, he runs right into this battle and he dealt the death blow to sin and Satan and death on the cross and in his resurrection. So when we come to the story of David and Goliath, there are some really important things that we need to see, not just about David and Goliath. There are some really important things that we need to see about Jesus we need to see what was at stake at the cross. We need to see that when David went down into that valley, it wasn't just David's future that was hanging in the balance, it was the future of all of Israel that was hanging in the balance. And not only did Jesus' future hang in the balance as he was on the cross, but our future hung in the balance as Jesus was on the cross. 
If David goes down into that valley and he is defeated, then Israel would be defeated as well. If David goes down into that valley and he is defeated, then Israel would forever be a slave to an enemy that they could never escape. And if Jesus was defeated, then we would be defeated too. If Jesus was defeated, then we would forever be a slave to an enemy that we would never be able to escape. But Jesus is victorious. And because Jesus is victorious, we are victorious too. Jesus came as an unlikely savior that no one expected. And he defeated our greatest enemy in a way that no one expected. For as great of a shepherd as David may have been, and for as great as a king as David would one day become, Jesus is our great shepherd. Jesus is our reigning king. Jesus comes as our great shepherd and he lays down his life for his sheep. And he did it so that all the world will know that there is a worthy God who loves them and that if they will simply believe in him, then all of the benefits of Jesus' victory becomes their benefits too. Like, do you see this? Do you see this here? We do not primarily need to be a David. We primarily need a David. So, if you're here this morning and you have never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have never turned away from your sin and turned toward the one who is your representative, the one who went down into the battlefield and fought the battle for you and won the battle for you. If you have not turned away from your sin and turned to him as your representative, so then all of his victory and all of the benefits of his victory are then given to you. They are poured out upon you. If you have not turned away from your sin, if you have not turned away from yourself, so that you could then turn to your Savior in faith, then we invite you this morning right here and right now to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you may be reconciled to this God who has fought this battle for you, who has won this battle for you, and therefore has rescued you from the judgment of God and has rescued you from slavery to sin and death now and forevermore. We invite you right now. This is the most important thing that you will ever do. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Which leads us then to our final caption. The story of Jesus and you. Look one more time at chapter 17 and verse 4. And notice how Goliath is described. Chapter 17, verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. So he's described in verse 4 as a champion. And then look down to verse 23. Verse 23, as, as he, as David, was talking with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. So twice in chapter 17, actually three times, again later, it's, it says it again, Goliath is referred to as a champion. In one sense, that means that he's the Philistine's best fighter. But champion is a Hebrew title, which means the man of the between. The man of the between. So in other words, Goliath was the one from the Philistine side who would come down the mountainside and he would cross the battle line on behalf of the Philistines. And he would stand in between the two battle lines, one on the Israelite side and one on the Philistine side. And once he crossed that battle line, he was down there to fight on behalf of his people. He was the man of the between for the Philistines. 
In a similar way, David ended up being that very same thing for Israel. He was their man of the between. He crossed the battle line and fought for them and secured victory for all of them. But in its greatest sense, Jesus is our man of the between. Because Jesus walked down into the valley of death and he crossed the battle line and he fought the battle and he has won the battle for us. So when we come to this story of David and Goliath, we need to see with crystal clarity that Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our champion. And because that is true, we can confidently then make two commitments. Here's the first. Since Christ is my champion, I will fully enjoy his victory. I will fully enjoy his victory. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to King Jesus, then every victory that he has won is your victory too. That means that the cross and the empty tomb and the promises of God are all the assurance that we need that God loves us and that we forever belong to him. It means that God's greatest single act of love in the past has changed your present and then has secured your future. Because Jesus Christ is our champion, it means that we have been fully and finally delivered from being defeated by our greatest enemy because our greatest enemy has been fully and finally defeated. And like the cowering Israelites watching on the sidelines, we didn't even have to lift a finger to do it because we couldn't lift a finger to do it. Our champion has fought for us. Because of our champion, we now have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. This is good news, amen? Like, we are declared the winner, even though we never fought the battle. And we get all of the prizes for the victory, even though we never fought the battle. Think of it like this. In a few weeks, there's one hockey team that is going to lift the Stanley Cup up above their heads because they have won it, and yet again, it's not going to be the Leafs. And that, that grieves me greatly, but, but they're going to lift the Stanley Cup up above their heads because they've earned it and they've won it. And this whole thing here, this, this would be like me jumping from the stands up over the glass onto the ice, running up to the guys who are holding the Stanley Cup up above their heads, and me going up to them and saying, yes, I won! And everybody on the ice and everybody in the arena would be looking at me and thinking, no, you didn't. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus, because he wins the battle for us, and with him we say, yes, we have won. We have won, and all the glory and the honor belongs to the Lord. So since Christ is my champion, I will fully enjoy his victory. And then number two, since Christ is my champion, I will fully employ his power. So for 40 days and 40 nights, the army of Israel cowers at the thought of this enemy, and the king that they were depending on to save them, King Saul, proves that he is both unable and unworthy to save them, mainly because he does not have the power of the Lord upon him. Loved ones, we need to see that we are faced with the same situation that Samuel was faced with back in chapter 16. We all have to choose a king over our lives. And for some of us, we have chosen our possessions to be our king. We've chosen comfort. We've chosen pride. We've chosen leisure or freedom, chosen retirement, whatever it may be. We have chosen 
one thing. We've chosen a number of things that we have let define the course of our lives. But if there hasn't been already, there will most certainly come a day when whatever you have chosen to be king over your life will prove that it is both unable and unworthy to save you. Why? Because the power of the Lord does not rest upon those things to save you. God told Samuel to stop looking at the outward ornaments of success and prosperity and instead to look at the one thing that matters the most to God, to look at the heart. Today, the call is the very same for you and the call is the very same for me. We are to look to the one who has a truly humble heart, to look to the only king who is truly able and truly worthy to save any of us. So, Let's get back to the question that we asked at the very beginning. What does the story of David and Goliath primarily teach us about fighting the battles within our lives? It teaches us that because God has defeated our greatest enemy at the cross, that he will most definitely fight our lesser enemies now. It teaches us that because God has defeated our greatest enemy at the cross, that he will most definitely help us fight our lesser enemies now. You say, what does that mean? It means that you can stand on your battlefield, whatever your battlefield might be right now. Whatever giant it feels like you're standing up against right now. It means that you can stand on your battlefield against cancer, or divorce, or miscarriage, or loneliness, or depression, or worry or fear of the unknown or desperately wanting the approval of other people. You can stand on whatever the battlefield is marked by in your life right now and you can know with absolute certainty that because of Christ, you never walk onto that battlefield alone. Like, moms, just think about this on this Mother's Day weekend. The story of David and Goliath means that you can take all of the fears that you have about what your kids are going through And you can take all of the fears that you have about your children's future. And you can take all of the insecurities and all of the worry and all of the weakness that you feel and all of the inadequacy that keeps piling up when you look at the other moms around you and you you wonder if you measure up and you keep feeling like you never make the cut. You can take all of those things that the enemy keeps using to whisper in your ear, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. You can take all of those things and you can know with certainty that your savior, your champion, walks down into those valleys with you and he stands ready to fight for you. Like, listen, because this is so important. You can walk onto that battlefield armed only with faith in God and the weapons of his word and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You can walk into any battlefield in your life and ask yourself, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Like if God is for me right now, if God is with me right now, if God is fighting this battle for me right now, then who can be against us? Can defeat, can fear, can harm, can discouragement, can loneliness, can inadequacy, can weakness, can judgment, can death be against us? Can anything in this life come against us in such a way that it will take Jesus Christ, my champion, my savior from me? Can anything come against me that will take him away from me? And the answer is no. No, 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 no. Nothing in this life, nothing in this universe, nothing will ever be able to take Jesus Christ, your champion, away from you. We need to understand that we stand on the battlefield under the protection of the one who has already won the victory for us. 
We stand on the battlefield, according to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, with weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh, but instead we have weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds so that Jesus Christ is glorified in everything. We stand on the battlefield with instant access to the full armor of God that unlike David and Saul trying to make the armor work, but it didn't, this armor of God has been fitted precisely for us and for every situation that we go through. So we need to understand when we come to the story of David and Goliath, it just reinforces for us over and over and over and over again that he is with you. He is with you and he will fight for you. And nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love that God has for you. Because of Jesus Christ, every enemy has been defeated. And because of that, we can be brave in Jesus' name. And we can be courageous in Jesus' name so that we can fight these battles and stand up to the enemy so that all around us will know and will see the glory of God within our lives.